As I've said before on many occasions, I just love our podcast community. I mean, what a great thing, isn't it? This is how medicine should be. The ability to reach out to each other and just bounce off complicated concepts or thoughts or difficult cases between one another. And at times, just to encourage each other, it's just so vital, especially during these kind of weird, crazy times. Just last night through our Facebook page, I had this wonderful virtual text message conversation with an OB pharmacist who's part of our Clinical Pearls podcast family. So let me just stop there for a minute. OB pharmacist. How great is that? I mean, medication use in pregnancy is so complicated. There's changes in pharmacokinetics. There's fetal safety. There's maternal drug levels that have to be watched at times. This is so key. So the ability to have a pharmacist dedicated to obstetrical care is wonderful. I hope this goes nationwide. That's actually a concept I've been trying to fight for in our local institution as well. Anyway, we talked about some issues. Oh, let me stop there for a minute. Do you remember the A, B, C, D, and X categories of drug use? I mean, that used to be a thing for a long time. Well, obviously, we don't have that anymore, right? It's just maternal safety and lactation guidelines. But this is why we need somebody like an OB pharmacist. But that leads me directly into our topic today. Because while it's not necessarily pharmacy-based, pharmacists, I'm sure, get asked this question a lot. Now, as I've said before as well, a lot of our topics come from clinical conditions, clinical cases, and this just happened yesterday. So I was with a brand new second year and a brand new intern in our clinic, and the patient who was 37 weeks was at wit's end. I mean, she had had it. She was like, just induce me. Let's be done with this already. I can't sleep. I'm irritated. It's affecting my quality of life, and it's, and it's really giving me anxiety. She's tried over-the-counter issues. She's tried herbal teas, and she just cannot get to sleep. No other medical conditions. She has no psychiat- psychiatric conditions. She's just 37 weeks pregnant and can't get comfortable. So my response is, hey, take a three milligram, no more than five milligram pill of melatonin. She said, oh, I thought that was bad during pregnancy. Well, is it? Well, I'm going to tell you what I gave that patient as a final consult, as a final recommendation at the end. But I thought, you know, that's a good podcast topic (laughs) because melatonin use in pregnancy is used regardless of what patients may bring up by themselves or not. That's why it's important to always ask about supplement use. Because according to data that I'm going to show you in a minute, up to 4% of pregnant women used melatonin during their pregnancy. Well, we need to know more about it. So I thought that's a great clinical pearls topic. So let's cover melatonin use in pregnancy right now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. One of the most recent pieces of data was just published in May and June of 2022 out of the Brazilian Journal of Psychiatry. These authors published a review of human studies on the subject and will cover that new data set at the end of the session. But here's why this is important. Sleep disturbances, including insomnia, are obviously very common in pregnancy. Prevalence estimates of pregnant women with sleep disturbances range from 66% up to 94% with higher rates as pregnancy progresses later in the trimesters. Emerging literature now suggests that sleep disruption during pregnancy is associated with poor pregnancy outcomes for both the mother and the child. There are emerging associations between maternal sleep and several major risk factors for adverse outcomes that can include even 
stillbirth. These issues are maternal obesity, gestational hypertension or preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, and fetal growth restriction. Now, it's interesting that researchers have published that melatonin levels are much lower in pregnant women experiencing preeclampsia with severe features. Of course, what is unknown is if that is a cause of, a result from, or simply an association or causation between the two. So again, a lot of questions there, but there is this tie between lower levels of serum endogenous melatonin and things like preeclampsia with severe features. But what we just don't understand is how those things are actually related to each other, or are those things just two independent co-variables traveling in the same car in the same direction? So a lot of questions still remain. Nonetheless, what's not a question is that altered sleep is more than just an annoying issue. It actually is an adverse effect. It has an adverse effect on our overall cardio and metabolic health. In recent years, sleep duration has dramatically fallen and has been paralleled by the rise in the prevalence of obesity. Chronic sleep restriction does by itself play a pivotal role in the pathophysiology of being overweight and obese by the modulation of neuroendocrine function. Here's what that means. Yes, obesity by itself affects sleep because of the higher rate of sleep apnea and just the inability to get comfortable with obesity. However, altered sleep in and of itself can also lead to being too overweight because it actually affects our neuromodulation and metabolic control. Yeah, you've heard this all before, I'm sure, that sleep disruption, including short sleep duration and sleep fragmentation, has emerged as a major determinant of metabolic health and in some studies it is an independent marker outside of weight for things like poorly controlled gestational diabetes. Habitual snoring, which is also a big factor here because that goes with things like obesity and being overweight. We've already discussed that. Also affects about a third of pregnant women in general. And this also contributes to the altered sleep, which can lead to the altered or the poor pregnancy outcomes. That's why getting a good night's sleep during pregnancy isn't just something nice to say to a patient. It has real biological consequences. Now, here's the other factor outside of cardiometabolic health. What about the link with sleep quality and depression? I mean, that's pretty easy to think about, right? I mean, that makes sense. Now, while there's many factors at play, it does appear that sleep deprivation in and of itself as an independent variable can exacerbate symptoms of postpartum depression. Now, this is true for both parents, with research suggesting that both mothers and fathers of young babies are more likely to have depressive symptoms if the mother sleeps poorly. Now, I know what you're thinking. Now, wait a minute. Which mother doesn't sleep poorly? I mean, they're breastfeeding every two to three hours, and they're stressed about the baby's health, and, and that's one of the problems, and that's right. It's all internal to being a new parent, but that altered sleep can trigger depression. Now, this isn't just postnatal. There is data that altered sleep during pregnancy can increase the frequency of postpartum blues and postpartum depression. Now, of course, the disclosure is it's still unclear, just like the other relationships that we've already discussed, whether poor sleep leads to depression or if depression is just subclinically there, it just hasn't been diagnosed. And that's what gives the altered sleep, since we know that depression itself can give poor sleep quality. But nonetheless, this relationship exists, although more data is needed to tease out the specifics. 
All right, well, that leads us into the main issue here, which is melatonin. So let's get into specifics of melatonin. What is it? Where does it come from? And this whole issue with supplementation during pregnancy. Melatonin is an endolamine produced by the pineal gland and secreted in a circadian manner. Melatonin has many important roles in human physiology. It's a regulator of circadian rhythm, it's a sleep inducer, and it may even have an overall antioxidant effect. As a supplement, melatonin has been found to be useful as a treatment for jet lag. It's used for delayed sleep-wake phase disorder, and it's also used for some sleep disorders in children. There is also the indication for anxiety treatment before and after surgery. There has been some conflicting data about prolonged use of melatonin in children and the potential for some behavioral issues, but that data is very cloudy and definitely nothing firm. Based on a 2017 article in the American Journal of OBGYN by Chung et al., it was reported that about 4% of pregnant women aged 18 to 40 actually use melatonin as a supplement, although very few actually disclose that to their provider. So what is this issue in pregnancy? I mean, does it have a role in pregnancy at all? The fetal pineal gland develops completely postpartum, so both the embryo and the fetus are dependent on maternal melatonin provided transplacentally. Melatonin appears to be involved in normal outcomes of pregnancy, beginning with oocyte quality and finishing with birth. Its pregnancy nighttime concentration increases after 24 weeks, with significantly higher levels after 32 weeks. Melatonin receptors are widespread in the embryo and the fetus since very early on in gestation. Evidence suggests that supplementary melatonin may help resolve difficulty sleeping, although there has not been adequate research into the supplement's long-term use during pregnancy. Similarly, there's been little to any great randomized clinical trials on the effects of supplementary melatonin during pregnancy to conclude absolutely that it's safe. However, nothing has proved that it's unsafe. No, that's not just a play on words. I'm going to explain that in just a minute. First of all, there is some interesting literature surrounding melatonin in pregnancy. There is some data that shows a potential benefit of melatonin in developing fetuses as a potential neuroprotective agent because of its antioxidant effect. Although in all disclosure, this has only been shown in animal models and there are no well-conducted clinical trials in pregnant women. There's also some very preliminary studies that have shown that melatonin supplementation may decrease certain adverse pregnancy outcomes, including fetal growth restriction, preeclampsia, and gestational diabetes like we've discussed before. But please understand that these are preliminary and typically they're based on animal models and they're not yet validated in human trials. Now, on a side note, melatonin also has been looked at in terms of reproductive success before pregnancy. Yep, there's melatonin data out of the IVF literature. Melatonin during the IVF process has actually seemed to be helpful in terms of improving oocyte quality. Melatonin has been studied in assisted reproductive technologies aiming to improve oocyte quality and pregnancy rates following in vitro fertilization. 
melatonin administration starting before IVS cycles and continued throughout pregnancy actually has been associated with improved pregnancy outcomes, but these were in very small cohort studies and safety was not one of the primary factors. Fertilization success and pregnancy rates were improved by melatonin treatment out of the IVF literature, with fertilization rates being 50% higher in melatonin treatment cycles compared to the previous melatonin-free cycles. So just an interesting side note that if your REI friends ever bring up melatonin, say, hey, I kind of heard it can improve egg quality. A little controversial, but there is data out there. Well, now that we're getting ready to get to the end here, where are we in terms of safety of melatonin in pregnancy? Well, the truth is, very few studies have directly assessed the benefits or risks of taking melatonin during pregnancy. And the traditional answer is, quote, until there is more evidence, it is not possible to know if taking melatonin in pregnancy is completely safe, end quote. That comes out of the National Sleep Center. However, we do know that altered sleep is a risk factor, again, for some pregnancy outcomes that are not desirable, and it's also an increased source of stress and even postpartum depression. So it's all in the risk-benefits ratio. I'm all in favor of melatonin as needed, not daily in pregnancy, and if used only at 1 to 3 milligrams with the patient understanding that while it's been used historically, we're just not sure of any long-term safety data, although there's been no red flags to date. So what else is left then? I mean, if melatonin isn't the first run and it's definitely not the first line agent here, what are we supposed to tell patients? Well, we're supposed to tell them things like lifestyle modification and certain things that have been used historically and have a proven safety record like diphenhydramine or doxylamine, which are great antihistamines. It can also make you feel a little groggy. They can also make you feel kind of weird the next morning. But Benadryl and Unisom have been used in pregnancy with no signs of harm, so that, in addition to lifestyle modifications, is the first-line recommendation. Now, remember that there's two easy modifiable issues here that count as lifestyle modifications. First is tell patients or remind them not to eat too late because eating a large meal late at night could trigger uncomfortable digestive issues, and that can obviously alter sleep quality. And the second is something that we should all take as our own advice, is to avoid electronics before bed. Don't check that email, don't check that Facebook stuff, because it alters your sleep. Devices like cell phones, television, tablets, and computers emit a blue light that actually suppresses melatonin production, and that leaves one more alert. Is that weird or what? Now let's wrap this up by just briefly touching on the new data that just came out May and June 2022 out of the Brazilian Journal of Psychiatry. These researchers searched the electronic databases of Ovid, Medline, Embase, and the Cochrane Library using terms and keywords related to melatonin, pregnancy, and breastfeeding. 15 studies were included in this review, and 8 focused on melatonin use during pregnancy, and 7 focused on melatonin use during breastfeeding. I'm not going to get into breastfeeding here, we can address that another time because I want to focus on pregnancy, but here's what they found. There was a variety of study designs, including case reports, cohort studies, and very few clinical trials, and those that were clinical trials were very small and they were not randomized. This review found no trials whose primary outcome was the safety or the efficacy of melatonin for insomnia or any other sleep disorder during pregnancy. Well, that wasn't helpful. 
The three clinical trials in this review used melatonin as an antioxidant, again under study protocol, for conditions during pregnancy like hyperglycemia, preeclampsia, or fetal growth restriction. Each of these trials reported that melatonin had some efficacy for each of those conditions, but the sample sizes were too small to make any definitive conclusion. So, of course, they recommended, quote, more data is necessary, end quote, to guide any clinical treatment or guidelines. Now, here's an important note. The dose of melatonin used in these trials ranged from 8 to 80 now, here's an important note. The dose of melatonin used in these trials ranged from 8 milligrams to 30 milligrams, whereas over-the-counter melatonin is available in dosages from 1 to 10 milligrams, with 10 milligrams marketed as the maximal strength. So the authors stated that the lack of safety concerns in those trials at higher levels suggest that safety concerns might be even less with over-the-counter dosages used on a as-needed basis. Furthermore, the trial with the highest daily dose of 30 milligrams reported no increased daytime drowsiness, which is another important safety finding about sleep disorder treatments. After all the data was reviewed, the authors concluded, quote, Contrary to what animal studies have suggested, evidence from clinical studies to date, although limited in study design, suggests that melatonin used during pregnancy and breastfeeding is most likely safe in humans. This review further emphasizes the need for clinical studies on sleep disorders, especially during pregnancy and lactation. End quote. So now that we're at the end, what did I tell this patient and what was the final recommendation? Well, it reminds me of the past A, B, C, D, and X designation of medications in pregnancy. A lot of the medications that we used in pregnancy were old category C, which said, hey, there's limited data in humans, but it seems to be okay. Well, that seems to be where melatonin is right now. If melatonin still was to fall under the FDA labeling letters that we used to use, it would likely fall into a C. And that's okay. I mean, Phenergan was a class C. So until harm is definitively shown, used at low dosages, only sporadically and not daily, seems to have value at reducing life stressors, anxiety, depression, and just helping overall quality of life when necessary. And that's exactly what I told the patient. Look, don't combine medications, don't take this and a Unisom, and I'd stick with a low-dose agent, a low-dose like 1 or 3 milligrams, maybe up to a 5 milligram, if necessary. Don't take it daily, but use it when you need a good night's sleep because you and your body and your baby deserve that. So that's my take-home message based on the available literature, knowing that there's been no well-conducted trials and some experts just don't recommend it at all. But even though I'm very type A and very evidence-based, or at least I try to be, I think that's just actually a lot more strict than we need to be, especially when a patient is suffering. Well, anyway, if you have a different opinion, I'd love to hear it. Send me a Facebook message as long as it's not ugly. All right, everybody. Thanks for being part of our podcast family. And we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.